Hello, welcome to another episode of Scuttlebutt. I'm Nick, I'm here with Vic. Hey. And William. Howdy. And today we are digging into Ukraine. But first, before we do that, Mr. Rubel, happy birthday. Oh. Oh, shit. Hey, happy Mr. Wilson, happy belated oh, birthday. thank you. <laughs> oh. oh. Happy birthday to both of you. Yeah. I had nachos in the office yesterday, guys, and you both missed it. Yeah, yeah. I'm in the office. I mean, you're in the office. So, huh? yeah. Were you here yesterday? Yeah. No, I wasn't here yesterday. Yeah, so you didn't. You, I mean, you but missed on, the nachos. On my birthday, I'm here. That's true. I was here so, too, but but you and you were here. Yeah, but the nachos. But you had nachos. <laughs> I've got a bottle of water, but I have all of these wonderful listeners to join me all on these my dear listeners. Yeah, these dear listeners in my celebration. Anyway, now that we've celebrated, let's look at the dark stuff overseas. Um, yeah, let's get a little less. <laughs> I was really excited because you said like digging into Ukraine. Like, well, guess who else is digging into Ukraine right now? But anyways, but dump bump, but dump bump, but dump bump. All right, so Russia has uh, stalled out. Uh, so last I saw, yeah, well, that they've actually lost ground, but they're kind of in consolidation mode. So what are we thinking here? Yeah, okay, so, well, yeah, well, so, well, so to actually, so if you um, go on and literally Google, um, you know, Russian invasion map, you can get daily updates on where it is. And it actually looks like, um, based on what we see here, that Ukraine has started to do some counterattacks around, um, especially around Kiev, uh, but a little also in the, in the Kharkov region and also some uh, south near, uh, please forgive my English, uh, Kherson region, that there, that yeah. you, that Russia is, is starting to get, again, no, nothing major, nothing I would say wholly significant, but th there has been some 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 advances made by the Ukrainian yeah. forces. And the Kharkiv region is that's the second largest city in Ukraine. Mm -hmm. um, it was the hardest hit in the few, first few days of the war because I think Russia was thinking if Kharkiv falls, all that's left is Kiev. Um, and the fact that it was almost entirely surrounded, never never fell. Um, well, even in Mariupol, they haven't capitulated. Yeah, they haven't capitulated, yeah. but they're really paying. I mean, the price there's not going to be anything left, but it's not. I wouldn't say yeah. it's secured. Now, what's crazy about Mariupol too is before the invasion ever happened, Russia was already in the Donetsk right. region, and they were already in Crimea, so they were already surrounded before the invasion ever started. Yes. So the fact that they've been able to hang on as they have is pretty inspiring. Well, and the fact that they yeah. haven't made it to Odessa yeah. is also kind of crazy, especially considering, and we talked about this, the potential of an amphibious landing. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I, I, I will tell you, I have been so um, shocked, obviously, by the, the, the terror and... The, just the loss of life and, and the wanton destruction, but at the same time, I was just so impressed yeah. with the Ukrainian forces and how they've been able um, to really hold hold the bear at bay. Yeah, and I think that too kind of goes into talking about training and education and stuff because after the uh, Donbass uh, situation in 2014, uh, Ukraine had just been cycling troops in to go get uh, seasoning. Uh, tr uh, and uh, be able to learn and then come back and do some training and education. They were on this like rota rotating cycle of every couple months. They would go in, try and fight the rebels, come back, share what they learned and all this kind of stuff. So they're kind of in a position where they've been working towards this for eight years, um, whereas the Russian troops are kind of just showing up green. So I think you're seeing that too, especially if you see the footage of how the Russians react when they get attacked. Yeah, I would say uh, very green because they're also yeah. just so, so poorly informed. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, um, for all our listeners who've are you come back to us many times, uh, 
our one of our recurring guests, Andrew Milburn, is actually currently over in Ukraine uh, with uh, Task and Purpose, and he's written several great articles on it. And like one thing that's been noticed, especially, is how he he uh, that Russians are very uh, attached to their armored vehicles and, and armored personnel carriers, and that's almost that is not even almost it's a uh, it's a false sense of security being so drawn in and close to those vehicles because that it can you can by by thinking you're safe around that area you just are are leaving yourself vulnerable to uh to high casualties that they've been suffering oh absolutely i mean uh you know being a met guy um yeah you like you're only fully embarked to get like from your basically line of departure to your assault position you're not trying to assault through an objective you're not Allowing is it definitely provides you a thin-skinned defense against small arms fire and um, some of the uh, effects of indirect fire because you know artillery rounds mm-hmm. the air burst, so you get protection from that. But yeah, once you're like with, well within the max effective range of you're getting guys out. I mean, it's yeah. for the vehicle safety, Dismount, yeah, and it's for like you said, because a single vehicle gets hit, that's eighteen guys done. And how it's looked like tactically from a scene from a lot of footage is like essentially these these armored personal carriers will roll up, drop the guys out. There'll be a gunfight almost immediately, and then they'll just go, yeah. Well, they've got they got like zero dispersion. Yeah. They roll like column formation, like no real tactical mindset that you can really differentiate they don't use the terrain to their advantage uh, and i know they've had issues with maintenance getting mo- you know uh, bogged down in the mud these sorts of things again that all comes from just super poor training and really uh, it just seems like zero familiarization with how to actually use the weapon system and going back to the word mindset you use for our marine listeners this is a very good uh education on on in the essence of like the opposite of maneuver warfare where you have like this high centralized command and control which is necessary if if your force consists of mostly green raw recruits who have who have little combat experience and the fact that we see like a lot of like high russian casualties uh, among the officer corps, especially you, you see on the news a lot, like a general or, or two have been have been killed repeatedly. Um, yeah, a couple of three stars. So it, it, it's you're seeing like how how that plays out in the 21st century like operating environment where yeah, and I, and I think it has more to do. Um, I'm just gonna push back a little bit on the having the green because you know throughout many many phases of our long war, I mean kids were co- like kids mm-hmm. were coming out of boot camp SOI and then we're getting on the plane and where I think we differentiate ourselves, we being the West, and I'm, you know, really kind of more talking, um, you know, UK, Australia, Germany, us, obviously, mm-hmm. uh, are, are real close allies. Um, and not even all of them within NATO, but those who really foster that senior enlisted advisor, the junior, you know, um, um, sort of pushing leadership down to the lower levels, distributed leadership, um, and dispersed formations. Uh, we have that ability to, you can take a fairly green unit, you know, where you're getting guys that are practically right out of SOI and still have a lot of success because those NCOs are seasoned, they are experienced, and they are trusted to be able to lead without a ton of 
micromanagement. Well, that's what I'm saying. Like, yeah. And I imagine from what I understand of like Russian uh, training and education, they, it's it's not to the same standards as yeah. the, as the West has. So, like, we're able to actually, you know, yeah, true. It's like they, we we are green, they're green alike. As as Abraham Lincoln said before the Civil War, it's like we're all green. It's it's going to happen. But like the level of training and like the strong officer and also like, um, uh, no, uh. SNCO core that you have there is will be a great indicator, and it seems like that they're lacking that for sure. You know, you're one hundred percent correct there. I mean, the the lack of because the NCO does so much more than just lead the troops. I mean, they are sort of in a lot of ways like your standard bearers because those lance corporals can look at the sergeant, staff sergeant, and be like that's me in five years. That doesn't always happen with the officer corps when you're talking junior enlisted even to junior officer yeah they're sort of relatively in the same generational uh, period but there is a stigma institutional that is necessary um, and there isn't that same level of familiarization or or, um, there's not what an officer does doesn't always necessarily resonate with what what the the junior enlisted mm-hmm. life experience, if that makes well, any yeah. sense. Well, like in like the Marine Corps specifically, like we we, we push trust down. Where like from what we've seen in Russia and the Russian military is like they keep trust up. Yeah, and I think conversely, you're seeing it from the Ukrainians. I don't know. I know obviously they're former Soviet, but they've made so many. I think. It seems to me, and, and Andy, obviously Andy Milburn would know this being right there, but it seems to me that they've embraced the more European ideology, mili- the, the view of war and how to conduct war. They've adopted more of a European mindset because they are operating in these hunter-killer teams. Mm-hmm. They're doing distributed small operations, unit small unit tactics. Yeah. And so I think just by proxy of where they are in this fight, they're having like they have no choice mm-hmm. but to trust those. I don't even know if you call them NCOs, but those leaders that are with those the leaders of those teams. Well, um, Andy Milber actually mentioned one of his articles okay, that awesome. there's actually a good coordination between locals and the and the Ukrainian military to guide them and like infiltrate through Ukrainian lines and to get them in a position where they can bring whatever firepower they can to bear against uh, Russian assets. So yeah. they, they very much like using, I don't even say like, I wouldn't say Western necessarily because you, you could probably correlate to like what a lot of Ukrainians are doing to like what a lot of, uh, you know, Vietnamese did during like the French Indochina wars. It's um, almost colonial. Yeah. It's, 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 fighting. it's, it's, it's yeah. like local, almost militia type almost, situations. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Coordinating with a larger umbrella, uh, Command structure, right? And um, I, I really hope it's it's making a lot of marine leaders and also just American military leaders like rethink a lot of like the 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 uh, the, the the goose that laid the, the golden eggs that we have, especially because uh, us at uh, Skoda but love you know bring up the tank reference, but like maybe maybe it, we were we were wrong in the sense where like you know maybe not wrong because we we kind of been neutral in that whole discussion, but I think the the Ukraine conflict with Russia currently is showing that how the the age of the tank is either dwindling or, or needs to be redefined yeah yeah you're you're, you're, you're really yeah. you're 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 hurting me deep inside here <laughs> <laughs> there there is value in armor formation because i i think i think it goes without saying that if we were to show up in the poland and like hey here's a shit ton of m1a ones could you guys use these i don't think the ukrainians would turn them down like i don't know what we're doing great with our jabs and our, our stingers but you are absolutely right as far as employment and how they're employed. And I think from what 
force design 2030s trying to do and what the the commandant's looking at and and you know and i think acmac really put it very well when he said it's a cube and weight issue more than anything else mm-hmm. is because from what i can get out of those 70 tons where the ship weights out before it cubes out i can put a lot of other stuff in here that does in a in a combined arms effort, maybe the same sort of thing that a main battle tank would actually do. And I, and I think you're absolutely right. When you look at what's going on in Ukraine, it's hard to push back on that because of what loitering munitions are doing, what unmanned, unpiloted uh, drone, you know, uh, automate, automated systems are able to do, what hunter-killer teams are able to do. Yeah, and it also might be kind of almost a rock-paper-scissors situation, too, where people have been throwing rocks so much yeah. that all the defenses know to throw paper, yeah. uh, which is very anti-tank and very Wait. capable at taking out heavy armor, yeah. uh, very logistically reliant pieces that might circle back around sometime in the not too distant future is now all of a sudden being what you need to, in order to break through in order to devastate in order to yeah uh, and so i think god i'm so scatterbrained right now so i apologize <laughs> for this but there's so many things that, I, that are coming to mind as we're talking about this but like one of the things that i think we're where we're seeing sort of the consequences of divesting of certain things is so where you could I would I would say from the outside looking in that it seems like momentum, if it hasn't at least gone 50-50, is shifting towards the Ukrainians. Mm-hmm. But because they've been using so many defensive-type weapon yep. systems, they don't have that, for lack of a better term, that ass to now do a really effective counterattack. Mm-hmm. And that's obviously where, God, man, I've only had a couple main battle yeah. tanks. We could really do a lot of damage yeah. here. And then another, I guess— Modern day context is if you look at Phantom Fury in the Battle of Fallujah, we use armor a lot in those situations in an urban environment because they are devastating, devastating weapons platforms. But you have to use them, unlike how the Russians employ their stuff. What we were talking earlier, hey, just get in and ride, fellas. We're <laughs> ride yeah. or die, literally. What was I guess I, I... get them out and you. They, 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 it's a, it's a almost symbiotic relationship between that tank or that AAV or that LAV, and then the dismounts. Like it's everybody's alive because everybody's working together to keep each other alive. I guess as the historian in me and like the the person who's never served in the military ever, what was I guess the anti tank capability in Fallujah? RPGs, yeah, and then like I guess IEDs. How how effective were those against? Very, very effective. One hundred. Like if we had just rolled in with say first tanks into Fallujah and just tried to armor it up, we would have lost a lot of very good Marines. And oh, go ahead. Sorry, I just have have a series of questions to ask. So like, I guess were they effective as in like you know a single RPG hit could take out a tank, or was the idea like that? Like I guess the tag was like an RPG barrage. It is. It's sapper teams. One hundred percent. Yeah. So I guess, I guess, I guess, so with with good infantry support, you could keep those. those, That's one hundred percent correct. So my question is that like as as technology gets better, and I I can imagine you know like Russia is is capturing javelins and other things, and is has their own has their own proficient. anti-tank systems and those are going to get better and then eventually as time goes on those will be peripherated down through um to, we'll probably see like these these systems throughout other on other conflicts um but if you don't get your guys out the back those yeah. things are not going to matter mm-hmm. and the w- best way 
that you can counter that stuff is to get your guys out. And it, we're, I think what we're seeing is, is that that old Soviet doctrine of just like rolling thunder, they don't dismount their guys. And if you don't yeah. dismount your guys, it's just a 70-ton coffin. And speaking of those yeah, guys, Nick, those guys you, are yeah. – you brought up the javelins, which brought up a almost hilarious anecdote type of a situation here. And I'm so the Russians. So right after the battle started, and the Ukrainians got pushed back in the east really fast. They were leaving a lot of the stinger stinger systems that we left for them behind. They just they're big and heavy, and you yeah, can't carry yeah. them, and you're moving fast. And so the Russians that picked them up were not turning them in because they're valuable battle trophies. So these young Russians are, like, trying to smuggle them back into Russia just to, like, put on the mantle. Like, a, like yeah, an actual armed... Yeah, yeah like... Or, a, or like, hawk on the black market. Or hawk on the black market, because they're so valuable. But it's like, they are, like, they see this. They don't see it as a weapon of war. They see it as an opportunity... Or trophy. For, for prestige or yeah. for cash. Yeah, yeah, so... To be fair, I mean, like... I, because I under, I think when I was talking to my dad, like the 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 rules in the United States military on that has changed on war trophies. But oh, like, dude, uh, yeah. I I have an anecdote on that. So yeah, go for it. So uh, we're consolidating in uh, Baghdad in 03. Everyone's like we're so happy with ourselves. A lot of high five and back slapping, like, and <laughs> they come down. And so like as we're starting to retrograde guys back on the ship and whatever. The whoever's down there inspecting all the cargo is like, what in the hell are you guys? Cause they're finding war trophies just stashed away, like in deck plates and seven cubes and like all this stuff. Like, dude, you can't bring like live ordnance like into. And so, God, so then they country. had the standing order like one a unit, and I think it was like a battalion sized unit was the lowest level that could have one war trophy. <sighs> And so they, so then everybody, like, we had this, like, everybody had a, I think it was like a 72 hour amnesty. Dump all your shit, and we're not going to then charge you on the UCMJ. Just get rid of it, blah, blah, blah. And if you want it, you have to, like, submit a formal thing up. It has to be, like, completely demilled, all this other stuff. And so. Over the next three days, we end up with, like, this massive, like, a pile of just weapons. (laughs) (laughs) Guys were just taking, I mean, ridiculous stuff. I think, actually, a piece of the Saddam Hussein or a Saddam Hussein trophy of, like, pure gold. Like, his finger, like, pointing (laughs) up or whatever. Like, this massive, as big as a basketball, was, like... (laughs) What a waste! Someone was like, I just trying to smuggle in their sea bag. As a historian, my dad was uh, like telling me like stories over there. Like, yeah, we'd find like you know stashes of like you know German weapons, MG forty twos, like Sturm Gewehrs, like PPSHs from the Soviet. Like, God, if you could just mail those back piece by piece to me, I'm not going to name his name because you know he's uh, actually working for the State Department now. But uh, my XO when I was a company commander, Charlie Company, we went in Iraq in 0708. Man, we were finding all kinds of cool stuff. He's a huge gun nut. Like, he yeah. loves guns. We found this, uh, I think it was a Dishka. Mm-hmm. Perfect. Oh, Jesus. Like, still practically in its cosplay. And, you know, it was obviously going to be used against us. It was buried and wrapped in plastic so that whoever would come along, just grab it and, you know, start shooting Marines. Whatever. So we, we grabbed it. We had to put it in our makeshift armory that we had in our compound. Man, I swear to God, 
it was like a kid looking at a stuffed animal in the washing machine. Like he was just at the cage of the armory, just stared like, look at that dish. And I'm like, XL, get away from the armory, man. Like yeah. I used to have like my ops chief like check it almost every few days to make sure there weren't pieces missing from it. No, if if, if things ever get better over there and my wife divorces me, I'm going to happily go over and just try to find all these caches of stuff and, and yeah. just li- anyway, live the historian's dream. That was a massive rabbit hole. But yeah, the war trophy thing is is real and that that is a it's ubiquitous that's not uh that's neither uh eastern or western that is just a a, a dude thing I why think. did they take that away f- why did they take that away from our soldiers and, and marines and sailors and such why did yeah. like that's such like a good like you know like morale boosting thing yeah i don't know that pile was um so we just gotta think sorry is this um we can say this okay uh yeah i just got a um Colonel Woodbridge, our uh, our editor in chief, senior editor, just let us know that Putin, Vladimir, uh, just ordered one hundred thirty-four thousand five hundred conscripts called up, and uh, that uh, that came from the defense ministry of the UK. Yeah, that was I, asked, I saw a uh, article on Reuters today, and apparently they're supposedly not supposed so to be use, using conscripts. You, yeah. You, you, well, I, I think these specific 134,000 are not supposed to be used in Ukraine, which either means, A, they're going to free up other men and units throughout Russia to go into Ukraine, or, surprise, surprise, Putin lies, and they wind up in Ukraine on a training exercise. Right. To get lost on la- doing land nav. Yeah, and then... But yet they're fully armed. Then you just... And like, oh, this looks like the... Uh, like a... Uh, it's kind of similar to uh, the Pripyat map on, on Stalker. Oh, wait, well, so we're this, in Ukraine. I, I guess just have this feeling that they're all going to be carrying jerry cans of gas, running <laughs> in, dropping them off, turning around and running back. Like, Yeah, they need f- food and ammo. Yeah, yep. They're just going to be like a daisy chain. of yep. lo- This is their logistics train. Yeah, these just, guys yeah they're all shoulder to shoulder. Like, <laughs> passing around like the water bucket. Yeah, like gas, yeah. <laughs> gas. food, <laughs> ammo. Food. Yeah. Um, well, this is interesting because this is a yet again another thing where uh the Russian um uh I guess uh, information campaign just can't get out of its own way because they said early on they weren't going to use conscripts even though it was clear that there are conscripts already there. Now he's just making it official. And then same thing with the withdrawal. Yeah. There's no one believed yeah. that, and it's not the withdrawal. I think isn't isn't heavy quotes. I think you mentioned we talked about the the initiative and how you think Ukraine has made see. I think I would be hesitant to say. I think Russia is trying to grasp onto it and reconsolidate. Um, but I, again, because you mentioned, because Ukraine doesn't really have much of a a kickback opportunity. I think the initiative is almost in the air at the moment. Yeah, yeah. You know, I think we are on a precipice here, and clearly, this is a war that Putin can't lose. And there's a lot of reporting that he's been misinformed, uninformed, that his um, his generals are just flat out lying to him about how things are going. Uh, yeah, so this is this is very very interesting yeah. um, as we make a very abrupt segue away from war trophy okay. <laughs> collections. But um, well, in addition to that, Belarus has. Forty God. to sixty thousand yeah. troops that aren't conscripts ready to go, um, and it's it's hearsay. But I just can't see how if Belarus gets involved directly, but Poland else. doesn't get right, involved right. directly. Right, right. Somebody else doesn't yeah. jump in. Well, he, and here's my thought on that. And I guess we you know, we talked a little bit before the show about um, Azerbaijan and, and uh, Armenia. 
in some of these sort of what Dr. Hunziker would call sort of these brush fire conflicts leading up to this. And then like you were mentioning Crimea and the Donbass and how the mm-hmm. U- Ukrainians would basically use that as like a almost like a training exercise. Yeah. Like that was their cax, like go into the Donbass and get some experience. But from an experience standpoint, I can't imagine that Belarus has any. I don't know what they would have been and involved so in. Yeah. I, Aside from internal uh, just policing of policing, the state. Yeah. So you're gonna send these guys into the meat grinder. That's not gonna I don't I don't see that as going I, I don't think the Belarusians should be very very excited about this prospect when they've yeah. got I mean well Zero. I have to remember though, like the, the, the old. I mean, the old ex- ethnic and 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 national fears and hatreds are still very real. So I th- I think I mean t- we don't also don't know what access to information that they have, and w- and ha- how they've seen the conflict so far. Right. right there was right, right. for a long time there. Lukashenko was the last dictator of Europe. I kind of threw that up in quotes because we can add Putin to that. Cause right. 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 Mm-hmm. But uh, was the last dictator in Europe, and like it's it's an uninterrupted dictatorship going all the way back to when they were still in the Soviet Union, right? So um, I would imagine that the Belarusian people have no idea what's, what's going, going on. on. Um, and they've, uh, again, like they've, they're been, been fed, you know, Putin yep. and, and Belarus and like, propaganda their entire lives. They probably think very little poorly of the Ukrainians. And also on top of that, the issue of, you know, Nazism in Eastern Europe as a whole, not just Ukraine, right, right. Is, is very real to them. And just mm-hmm. bringing upon those those old generational fears that they've grown up with, and their parents and grandparents have grown up with. Yeah, I mean that's it. It, it works. I mean, if, if you, actually, because we we talk about how like a lot like the the current situation where uh, that we live in is more akin to like World War One era than uh, World War Two era, and the fact that like you know during World War One that the Allies and the uh, the uh, the Central Powers played off of these fears of all these smaller nations in Europe. To try to pull them into the conflict, and then what happens is you essentially have an untrained, poorly equipped army that gets thrown into a meat grinder. So this could be a, a sort of a similar circumstance to that. Yeah, I don't know what the escalation or the response is if another country starts sending in troops. I I can't imagine that bodes well for Europe because even or the world. Which yeah, which is what I was going to get at is is that this like. The spillover of that, and I guess I, and I'm still. This isn't a fully formed thought, but I mean, those Belarusians, you know, they send tens of thousands of guys into this area. They have n- like literally no idea what's going on. They start getting hammered. They come home or like, you know, trying to explain what's actually going on. Mm-hmm. The government cut, shuts that down, but I mean, that message is gonna get out. And then things just, I think, just start to unravel. Then at that point, I mean, not that they aren't already, but. I don't know how, because right now, it's for the Russian and Russian allies, it's very sanitized because they can control the messaging at least within their own borders. Mm-hmm. You start adding in people or adding in other countries, other agencies, other folks with a vested interest who are also just as blind, and now their eyes are open to what's going on, and they start getting hammered. I mean, how does the Belarusians then explain, like, hey, we've got tens of thousands of guys with aren't who either aren't coming home or coming back like mangled mentally and physically mm-hmm. um and this was just supposed to be some sort of special operations to help we're helping out big brother I, I don't know how that that plays yeah and part of that too is they just had that recent 
referendum. We're going to put the referendum in quotes because who knows how uh, how free the election was, obviously. But uh, where they were like 85% of Belarusians were like, yeah, give us those Russian nukes. We need to be able to hit Berlin. You know, like, yeah. Um, yeah, and like spillover too. Like, I don't see, like, if it does explode out, there is, I've, I feel like, the overwhelming uh, technology numbers and all of that stuff is on the side of anybody who, if NATO gets involved on that side of the uh, yeah, the west, on that yeah. side of the equation. But like, it's still like that's not going to be easy. Um, and then you're gonna, it does, it's not just gonna be there because then we're gonna end up in in Georgia again. We're gonna uh, the the caucuses will be a, be a mess. Um, well, you were mentioning yeah. that's, that's gonna already, happen with Turkmenistan. That's already a, and yeah, well, so. you say you were mentioning that's already a powder keg yeah, because so of the refugee situation. Oh yeah, and so there's people fleeing Russia. Who there's I can't the numbers are hard to gauge, but I've heard between two hundred fifty and three hundred thousand people have fled Russia. They are trying to get to Armenia because Armenia is fairly Russian friendly. But one of the ways they get out is through Georgia, and they're kind of spilling into Georgia these. Russians who should, in theory, be like the intellectual, more scholarly types who speak the brain drain the that everyone's yeah. talking about. Yeah, yeah, the brain drain Russians. But the Georgians don't see them that way. They see them as Russians. They see them as, you guys are awful to us. We cannot stand the look of your face. Yeah, get out of our country. Yeah, we, we've so yeah, it's like same song, second verse. Like yeah. we've, played, we've we've done yeah. this dance already. The last Russians who came in here totally effed us up. We don't. <laughs> yeah. we don't want you. Like so. And that that's all a mess. And then they've got a ton of Ukrainian yeah. refugees. And their Ukrainian well. refugees are also going that direction because right. Ukrainians are going any direction they can. Yeah. Um, and uh, some of them are being forced into Russia, and who knows what's going to happen with that. That just <laughs> sounds like a terrible situation. Oh, absolutely. Um, we are, and I, I, I want to kind of cycle this around too, uh, back to you, Vic, because we are bringing in, have brought in, uh, tens of thousands of Ukrainians to America are promising to. We kind of made the same promise to the Afghans, but we did yeah. not even come close to reaching what we yeah. said we were. Yeah, I, we probably should have started this episode <laughs> with a caveat that, like, do like please follow up on anything that we say because, yeah. admittedly, uh, you know, we're trying to take in all this information as quickly as we can, and is it's a lot. It's drinking from a yeah. fire hose, and so. My data on this isn't awesome, but yeah, you're right. I think we're at tens of thousands of Ukrainians, or at least we've authorized yeah. the um, the acceptance of tens of thousands of Ukrainians, uh, and it's a good thing. And I, I know I'm not trying to put a blight on that, but I am. I do want to juxtapose it with our treatment of Afghan refugees and our hesitance and our reticence and in, in the tens of thousands that we promised. Like, no kidding. Hey, you are cleared hot to come in, yeah. and then we only brought in, like, 3,000 of them um, and just left all those folks in there. So, I mean, that that scab is still very fresh. Yeah. Um, and, I, and I know, you know, obviously, and rightfully so, Ukraine is dominating the headlines right now, but there are things going on still that are a bit of a head-scratcher. I don't know why... There's this disparity when it comes to refugees, especially considering everything that we did and all everything that these Afghans did for us mm -hmm. while we were there, why this is an issue. Uh, not to say that we should cut back on Ukrainian uh, refugees. I think that's that's a very worthwhile and worthy cause. But um, 
I don't know why maybe we maybe because the Ukrainian refugees are seen as being European. Uh, no, temporary. No. Whereas the Afghan refugees are more of a permanent maybe. solution. Maybe that's part of it. But there, the 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 stuff I've seen on the news of the Ukrainians is they're integrating into our society. Are they? Yeah, well, I right. mean they're not so, in camps. So this is our, in our first uh, live fat checking uh, <laughs> <laughs> yes. uh, on Scuttlebutt. Uh, CBS News. Uh, this article came out the 18th, so I don't pr- probably could find something more recent. But I, th- I think it's more like we've opened up the option. I don't think we've had a, a lot come over necessarily yeah. already. And I'm double checking to see how many we we took in in Afghanistan. So please keep going. Yeah. Well, I guess maybe that's the thing is is that we've o- like technically we opened it up to Afghans too, yeah. and then things unraveled so fast that they couldn't get out right yeah um but that also just it's a head scratcher on the planning on it then i, I don't yeah. know but um yeah uh and maybe yeah maybe because you, the, you know for the vast you, you know as we're looking at this map i mean the, the from a real estate standpoint kiev is still in control mm-hmm. there's no regime change Afghanistan, the Taliban took over within a f- few days. Yeah, and it's sounding like um, that's not going well. Like that's still a festering wound. So yeah, I do appreciate at least them, you know, admitting they're going to be more moderate. I mean, I think at least publicly yeah. saying that they're going to seek to have a more moderate regime is a. Yeah. Is a I was is just a reading a, a story about them closing down the girls' schools, though. Mm-hmm. And that's creating a whole mess of problems. And For sure. Well, I mean, I, the, yeah, the, the, so. the treatment of women uh, in Afghanistan is just, it's just, it's disheartening. Yeah. So according to the source we're using, Al Jazeera, over the past 20 years, uh, 74,000 Afghans are now living in the United States. I don't know how many of that, though, is from the recent uh, fall yeah, of Afghanistan. Yeah, I mean, like the past though. eight months, yeah. In the past <laughs> eight months. And this article did yeah. come out in February. Yeah. So. Yeah, I know that we pro- I, I, the last uh, statistic I saw was that we had promised upwards of like 23,000 Afghans at before the Jairoa fell. We promised them visas to come over because of everything that they did to help us. Um, and this was like the full on, like the full, full process, like troops, soldiers, sailors, Marines, airmen, filling out all the paperwork, getting it approved to the State Department and getting like, no kidding, like... Yeah, they're approved to come over. Twenty three thousand mm-hmm. of those folks, and only three made it at the time uh, when Jairoa fell. And like you said, at this point, it may be more. Um, yeah. Anyhow, but also as we're looking at spillover, um, and we're looking at other headlines that aren't um, that are sort of on the back page, if you will. We got Yemen. Yeah, and they're in the news right now too because yeah. the. The um, what's the minority? The Houthis. The Houthis uh, attacked Jeddah last week during the Formula One race. Yeah, they blew up an oil yeah. refinery. They or launched something. a missile at them, yeah. and uh, it hit about six miles away from where the race was being held over on the coast. So that kind of brought that back into the news, and kind of got me kind of like I've known about it. It's been this yeah. crisis that's been ongoing, but it's so out of the sphere of. It's very peripheral to the average American, yeah. despite taxpayer dollars but funding what could be considered by many myself included a genocide of the saudis on the yemenis yeah i mean uh, uh, and again this is a 
um, this is this could be an episode in and of itself, practically a series if we really wanted to delve into it. So in a very overly simplistic form, is for those who aren't aware of what's going on in Yemen, it's the civil war. Um, again, overly simplified between Shia and Sunni. Uh, and then because of that, you have Iran influencing the Houthi and backing them. And then you have Saudi Arabia and UAE essentially backing the uh, government of, um, of Yemen. Uh, and they are in, we're in Ramadan and they were trying to, uh, before Ramadan, actually agree upon a ceasefire so that everyone could worship. Um, uh, and... They, they weren't able to do it. And so things have started to escalate again. Um, and as, for anybody who's been in the Middle East and if, uh, has been uh, parta- participated in the long war, you understand the seasons. And as we're getting into the spring and climates are more moderate, uh, we're getting into the fighting season. And so you're going to see an uptick uh, basically for now and then before summer. And then things will sort of shut down as things get hot and then they'll pick back up in the fall. Uh, but yeah, this is essentially, it's been going on in earnest since 2014. It's really been going on since like the Arab Spring in 2011 uh, is where the sort of the seedbed of this all, was all coming from. Uh, but yeah, uh, probably the largest humanitarian crisis that we were facing prior to the war in Ukraine. So I think the caveat I would t- add to that is it's, I think I would think it's, it's the largest, but the issue is because it's it's very peripheral to the average American. It's not getting as much attention as Ukraine is, and also yeah, and because yeah. it's been going on for you know almost you know over a decade. Yeah, and you're right. It is also like to be fair, it is a very complex. You need to do a lot of, of back reading and research to even have a, a, a semi clue on what's going on yeah, there. It's gotten and and American involvement in yeah. it, let alone that. Well, beyond that, yeah, it's gone like yeah, complicated. It's like if you peel back one layer of the onion. You peel back another layer of the onion. You peel back another layer. Like, it just never ends. Like, an yeah. endless it, onion. Like and just like, like an onion, it's going to make you cry. It's going to make you cry, <laughs> yeah. Um, so you pull, uh, switching from an onion to a to a thread, like you pull on one thread out of the ball there, and all of a sudden, like, five more threads are clinging to it because now you're, like, looking at Yemen and Saudi Arabia, and you're like, oh, wait, how did Somalia get involved? What's what's Djibouti doing here? Yeah. What, China? What's yeah. going on? Like, and then uh, it's just yeah, the UAE that an amphibious yeah. assault from Eritrea. Yeah, what, what, what? <laughs> yeah, like it's not just a civil war in Yemen. It's like it's almost all encompassing to certain parts of yeah. the world, and it's it's ridiculous how little we know about it. Yeah, and I think to William's point is is that we don't. Yeah. I guess both your points. We don't know a lot about it, and it is on the periphery, and it, it seems like it's very distant from what Americans should be concerning themselves with. It definitely doesn't fall within Maslow's hierarchy of needs. But at the same time, if we look at what chaos and turbulence on a global scale looks like, it it definitely affects all of us because, I mean, especially as we're, I guess we're in a post-global globalized world now. Like, dude, there's... Things yeah, that just happen in yep. bubbles, man. Yeah, yeah, because yeah, uh, yeah, you pull on both of those threads, uh, Yemen and Ukraine, and all of a sudden Venezuela pops out. Yeah, yeah, like this opposite side of the world. But now we're talking about lifting our sanctions on Venezuela to, to get, get off of Russian oil, and part of that too is 
OPEC is OPEC, involved yep. because Venezuela is in OPEC, and now all of a sudden China is involved because China wants OPEC to keep gas prices at a certain level because China is very, right. very coal and. Well, then obviously like, any any turbulence in the Middle East affects yeah. the big profit margins for OPEC and. And bringing back into everyone's favorite Marine, Smedley Butler, at least one of my favorite Marines. Uh, <laughs> definitely be if, – if, if you're interested to figure out why all these countries are involved, just take a good reread of uh, War is a Racket by Smedley Butler to get, like, an understanding of, like, in all these conflicts, there is always money to be made. A lot of it. Yeah. And, and, and unfortunately, in this – Post, I, just, I like that term, post-globalized society. Is that what you said? I think, yeah. Post -glo yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, we if, I, if, if it wasn't said before, then definitely it's – I got it. Yeah, I, the I, globalization I, part is just about <laughs> over. It's it's global now. We're post-globalization. Yeah, yeah. Po uh, yeah. We're entering – oh, gosh, no. I'm not – we're tangenting way too hard anyway. <laughs> I like it, though. <laughs> we're entering a post-national world, too, soon. So, like, oh, with the big uh, super governments and all that stuff. Yeah. So. Um, Buckle up, kids. <laughs> yeah, for real. Like, definitely need your five-point harness. But I will say one nice thing that we would would really be really great for a lot of these conversations is to get an expert on. Yeah, someone who really knows the ground and could talk to this stuff. And so I don't know. We'll see what we can do. All right. Well, we have been chatting now for forty minutes. Do we want to toss anything onto the fire or? Uh... Um. I don't know, man. I was all over the place. Like, I don't even know if I can even reel it back it in. Felt so it was like a central thesis. Yeah, we were we were in there. We were. We just, it felt dense. Like we've been talking for forty minutes. I mean, same old, same old. You know, keep diversifying your sources. Keep educating yourself. Uh, re remember, like you know, we are in times of war in the twenty first century, and information is is a weapon. Yeah. And and will always be. So just be be careful. Be cognizant and understand. And 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 do your best to diversify. Yeah, and then I, I would say for those in uniform, or definitely those who are um, have, you know, business with those in uniform, is like take a look at what's going on. And granted, you know, as much as information is proliferated, it's also sort of source specific too. Mm -hmm. So check your sources, but also look and see what's going on, and then just sort of overlay the things that we are doing as we are transforming the force. Is the DOD is looking to find its place post counterinsurgency, and look at see what's going on, and look at what the criticisms are of some of these new initiatives, but then look and see how things are playing out in real time, and if you can find a, you know, a sort of an overlap there, and just to do the mental wargaming of like what does this all mean for our endeavors in the 21st century um oh yeah a, a great point Vic. i mean like the future of warfare is now and, yeah. and 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 not looking at any of these even a small brush fire i used to the united states like conflicts are important to study and analyze because they're using the most current technology and as like you looked at in the history of the marine corps is that especially you've seen like discussions on like the best way to to to, to teach and educate is to understand like the like the um the current application of modern technology and how it can be used combined with a study of military history. Yeah. So if you're able to take those two together, so like again, take take time, read articles. Um, like you said, like Andy Milburn, who's been on our show, is currently in Ukraine with Task and Purpose. Take it, take some time, read his articles, and figure out like what tactically and strategically is evolving in the conflict of Ukraine because this is the biggest conflict we've seen on this scale 
in decades. And it, it's a great case study to learn and figure out how you can apply the lessons that Russians and Ukrainians are learning right now into your into your training and education. Sure. I mean, and even going even back to Dr. Hunziker, dying to learn. I mean, we're seeing learning on the battlefield, like in real time. Mm-hmm. And what does that mean for an organization that where we have the benefit to really break down the X's and O's of what's happening? And you could also take another angle and you can look at those who are so regimented in the ways that they used to do business and their their just absolute inflexibility in adapting without what Andy Mober would call that without a absolute divestment of intellectual curiosity. What is that looking like? And I'm alluding to Russia. So as Russia does their standard textbook stuff and the Ukrainians are learning on the fly and doing things and adapting to the environment. Like, what is that looking like? And I would say that it's not looking good for those who are holding on to antiquated um, tactics, techniques, and procedures. Also and, antiquated and, and also like misapplied because all the all those times when Russia was was in, was asserting the military prowess in other instances, you know, like in Chechnya, Georgia, those are smaller countries with tiny populations with one or two major cities. And and when you're when they try to apply this the same mantra to Ukraine, they're getting their ass handed to them, because they 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 didn't a like learn and evolve from this process, and also they think that the same playbook would work just in a larger situation, right? And, and it's not, right? Yeah, and uh, the other places didn't get shoved full of aid as much. That's as another thing because they were still, I mean, within yep. that Russian former Soviet mm-hmm. bloc stuff. I mean. Ukraine yeah. for all, I mean, it's Europe. Man. Yeah, Ukraine was in Europe. It was on the precipice of the EU, EU. and NATO, and mm-hmm. um, and now they need mechanics. That's one of their three things they'd like to get from us is repairs. So, um, all right, well let's uh, let's let that one sit. We got. Let's talk a little bit about. Uh, let's do some housekeeping, guys, before we uh, sign off here. Um, for those who don't know. Our good co-host Vic here is going to be spending the next six to nine weeks. Yeah, it's going to be a minute. <laughs> uh, on the West Coast. So he is going to be out there recording, be- meeting up with some folks and uh, hitting up. I can't remember if he's hitting up any schools or anything. but just Yeah, I'm going to be in Cali. Uh, yeah. And so I'm going to try to, you know, be visible i guess yeah. for our west coast listeners <laughs> and um yeah we'll still be doing some shows i'll be calling in remote and doing some interviews without while i'm out there and stuff but yeah i won't be in studio uh until gosh uh after like the fourth of july <laughs> holiday or something crazy yeah it's gonna be a while so we're gonna sound a little different over the course of the be- or beginning of summer here but uh vic is still out there working hard um and i if anybody's out there and wants to gr- buy him a beer, he won't say no. I will not say no, and I might just interview you. <laughs> so, careful. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, we've also just submitted the pages for our publications. Anything exciting coming up in Gazette, guys? Oh, man. Uh, keep keep yeah. an eye on the uh, the letter section. It's yeah. our letters to the editor section, the Gazette, because there's, there's some juicy stuff coming up in the uh, in the next, next edition. Some really good back and forth, especially what we, we talked about Marinus a couple of weeks ago. Uh, is EABO Maneuver Warfare? And we've actually – a really good uh, letter to the editor. I think what was it in uh, – was it May? I just April. April? Yeah. 
or to the one we're about to release. In May, yeah. Yeah, May. in May. Yeah. Check, uh, look forward to that. You, I, I, you see some really convincing ar- arguments. And a lot of people are getting in the ring on both sides of, of, of this discussion. So if any of our listeners want to, please hop in, write, get in. It, it's, it's a great time yeah. to be a writer for the Marine Corps Gazette. And then uh, June's training and education. So um, you want to know what's going on and what people have to say about uh, where we're headed. Um, yeah, the Gazette is a great place to start. All right. So the May Gazette will drop in April around the 19th, I think. I have to check the dates, but just know that it's going to drop about two and a half, three weeks into the month. Also, scuttlebutt news. We got we uh, finally got around to it. We have released our Reddit page for all those uh, Redditors, Marines out there, who listeners. So if you want to, it's r slash MCA scuttlebutt, all one word. We release our episodes. And we actually, uh, Vic and I have a bunch of pro dev stuff coming down the pipeline. So yeah. we'll, we'll, ha- we'll share links to that. And, it, and please, like, if, if you comment on our things, if you, if you have questions or clarifications or if you have ideas, uh, once once we get a few more followers, we'll start uh, having you know, essentially like you know, hey, what do you like to talk about on scuttlebutt issues? Because we we want to make this uh, the best for our Marines, so that y'all can uh, do uh, your job the best you can. All right, we've also got kind of scuttlebutt related. A writing guide gonna hit the ground here. Yeah, that's gonna fall into the pro dev. Yeah, but um, you know, uh, we're gonna sort of explore, uh, if, for lack of a better term, sort of a, a four writers portal on the website uh for anybody who is interested not only in submitting to the gazette but just wants to improve their writing or if there's leadership that wants to um sort of take on the pme of making written communication stronger within their unit uh within the profession of people who need to be able to write well um we're going to provide links we got a, a podcast with colonel woodbridge we're going to be talking about those things, um, of the writer's guide, and um, you know, little Grammarly stuff. Uh, also, we tips do and tricks. We do take your feedback seriously. Uh, one of our listeners emailed us and asked for certain documents to be on our, our website. So we're actually in the process of, of doing that, and hopefully, should have it done in the Some, next yeah firing tables next so. uh, few weeks to month or so. So yeah, please, if you have any information or information that you want available, or a battle study, or anything in particular, like. We are, we are, we're rolling out this content, and we would love uh, your feedback and input. And also, it's going to happen. I know I teased it like a month ago, but we did chat with Chief Warrant Officer 5, Tad Tomoski. I'm going to edit that up. It's a fun little sea yeah, story. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we're not going to release it as a full episode, but it'll be a little sea story. We'll drop it. You can listen in. It's really entertaining. Yeah. Experiences in Ukraine. Ex- yeah. Post-Crimea, but pre- Yeah, yeah. post-Orange yeah, Revolution. Yeah, yeah. Um, so... It's it's interesting, and uh, I want to get that out for you guys. But the schedule being what it is, it's gonna fall in when it can. Yeah. Right. Um. Anyway, uh, anything else to add to the housekeeping? Nope. No, good to go. That's cool. All right. So this was our third, fourth talk on Ukraine. Six weeks in. Um, yeah. We'll uh, keep keep in touch, and uh, thanks for tuning in. Next week we are going to. Next week, sometime in the next couple of weeks, we're going to have our episode with Stephen Canty, who is a documentarian. And I wish he was out before the slap. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Take it easy, Bye. people.